0: If you have your worship information there, go ahead and pull out your outline. I want to talk to you about what every man needs to know. And actually, this will also apply uh, to you as well, ladies. But uh, I I want to help uh, every woman here with your sons, with your husbands, with co-workers. And I want to start out with the men's thesaurus. So what does it really mean when a man says this? So, for example, when a man says, it would take too long to explain, what he really means is, I have no idea how it works. When a man says, take a break, honey, you're working too hard, what does it mean? It means, I can't hear the vacuum, I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner, dear. And then when a man says, and this is probably too close to home, That's interesting, dear. He may actually mean, are you still talking? (laughs) When a man says, it's a guy thing, what does he really mean? He means there is no rational thought pattern connected with this, and you have no chance of making it logical. When a man says, "Uh uh-huh, mm-hmm, yep, sure, Yes, dear, it means absolutely nothing. It is a conditioned response. I'm preaching the choir now, aren't I? When a man says, your son says, I can't find it. Here's what he really means. I stretched out my hand. It did not fall into my hand. I'm completely clueless. Now, this one may be true. It may not be true. I refuse to show all of our hand, guys. We want to keep some of our secrets. But when a man typically says, you look terrific, what does he really mean? Oh, please, don't try on one more outfit. We're late and we need to get going. When a man says, I'm not lost, I know exactly where we are. Isabel, when Jay says that, you know what it means? It means, you will never see us alive again. (laughs) And finally, when a man says, that's not what I meant. How many of us guys have said that? I think I said that this week. (laughs) Yeah. Let me tell you what that means. That's not what it meant. That's not what I meant. It means... If something I said can be interpreted in two ways and one of them makes you less sad and less angry, that's what I meant. (laughs) So that's the man's thesaurus. So here we go. So let's talk a little bit today about what does every man Need to know, and actually every person actually, but for Father's Day we're talking to men. Number one, here is what we need to know. We need to know who we are. Every man needs to know who he is. In the Old Testament story of Moses, when God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, I want to use you for a divine purpose. I want to do great things in you. Here is what Moses said. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11, he says this favorite statement. He says, who am I that you would use me? Moses lived 120 years. He lived 12 decades. And for the first 40 years of his life, he was the guy. He was educated by the University of Egypt. He was the grandson of the most powerful man In all the world, the pharaoh of Egypt, he had it all together. He ate the best foods. He drove in the Mercedes chariot. And whatever he wanted to do, he could do it. So for the first four decades of Moses' life, his motto was this, I can. I can do it. I can fix it. I can make it happen. And most men go through at least two of these phases. There's a time in our life where we think we can do anything. We think we're immortal. We think we're bulletproof. We think we are Superman. That's why we jump off high places into shallow creeks, because we are Superman. That's why we drive our cars till they rattle past 100 miles per hour as young men. Why? Because we are indestructible, and I can do it. That's why you walk in and an interview at 21 years old and the boss asks you the question, where do you see yourself in five years? And you look at the man and say, I'll have your job in six months. Am I right? That's that young man that says, I can do it. It's based upon our testosterone. It's based upon our, our muscle mass. It's based upon ourselves. I can. But if you live long enough, Life has a way of punching holes in you, and the testosterone begins to wane, and dreams begin to crash, and life starts punching holes in you that maybe you're not where you thought you were going to be when you graduated high school. Maybe what they said you were in the, in the yearbook, the most likely fill-in-the-blank, hasn't happened, and now you're a little grayer maybe a little balder, maybe a little weaker, maybe not who you thought you would be at your 10th year anniversary, at graduation or 20th year. And now you go through a phase called the I can't phase. And so Moses lived 40 years saying, I can, I can, I can. And then he spent 40 decades on the backside of a desert as a shepherd. Why? Remember the story when God said, I'm going to make you a deliverer, The story before that was is Moses tried to deliver the people to his own power. If you remember the story, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Jewish people, and the Bible says he looked this way and that way, and he killed the man, and he buried him. He didn't hit him on accident. He beat him until he killed him. I can and yet Moses wasn't able to deliver Israel on himself by himself. And so now he is on the backside of a, as a desert, as a shepherd. He was raised as an Egyptian. Egyptians hate sheep. And now he's doing the job he hates. He's flipping burgers. He's in customer service. He's hating life. And God shows up and said, Hey Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people Israel. And he says, Who am I? I can't, I've made a mess of my life, I murdered someone, I threw my life away, I cannot do it, I'm too old, I didn't get the right degree, I've been thrice divorced, whatever you want to say, put it in there. I've never had a successful relationship. I've never held a job past 90 days. Put whatever you want. I haven't held a job past three years. I I have never been promoted. Put whatever you want in there. You can say, I can't. I applied for it, and they never called me back. I interviewed. I thought they liked me, and they didn't hire me. I can't. And God shows up, and you put whatever your excuse is I cannot do this because. And I believe that every man at some point in their life will go through those two phases. I can do it. And I can't. All of us will face something in our lives that duct tape will not fix. And duct tape can fix a lot of things, but it doesn't put hearts back together. And duct tape can do a lot of things, but it doesn't heal a loved one of cancer. And duct tape does a lot of things, but it doesn't bring her back after she fell out of love with you. Am I preaching to the choir? Are you hearing me? And so for 40 years, I can't. But what I love about Moses is the last 40 years, he stepped into another realm that I hope every one of you experience in your life. And not everyone will. Because not everyone will become a follower of God. Not everyone will become a Christ follower. When God shows up to Moses and says, I'm going to use you, and he says, who am I? God changes the question. And actually, he answers the question by saying this. God says, I am Yahweh. I am that I am. I am he who has always existed. Some religions translate it Yehovah, Jehovah. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I am God and I am all sufficient. Who am I? And God says, I am God. And he says, who you are is actually irrelevant outside of me. Because your identity must be in me. I am God, I am your God, and you think you can do it and you couldn't, and now you think you can't and you can't, but I'm God, and I can do the impossible. And for the last 40 years of Moses' life, Moses began to live in this realm where he said, I can do anything if you go with me. And he came to a point where he was going to go into the possession, the land that God had promised. And he says, God, if you go with me, I will go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. And there has to come a place in our lives, my friends, where we know who we are, not in our own strengths, not in our own weaknesses, but we come to know who we are in relationship to who He is. Here's the reality. In this life, I can do nothing lasting in myself. Everything I have is hay and wood and stubble, and it will rot, or it will be stolen, or it will rust. But I will look to God and say, but you are the I am. You are the one that has always existed. You are the one that meets every need. You're the one that cannot be exhausted. You're the one that cannot be stopped or or shocked or surprised. You're the one that can do the impossible that I cannot do. And so if we don't recognize that at first and realize our identity in Him, here's what we begin to do. We begin to get our identity in our work. What's the very first question a man asked another man at a cookout? Here it is. Prepare for it. What do you do? Now, that might be innocent. That might just be because you have nothing else in common and you're trying to get a commonality. But it may also be deeper than that. Sometimes I think we ask the question, what do you do because I want to find out how significant you are. Are you with me? What do you do? And here's what happens. Oftentimes men get their identity in what they do. I am a plumber. I am a banker. I am a mechanic. I'm a pizza delivery driver. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. I'm an engineer. I'm a a longshoreman. I work at the shipyard. This is who I am. And listen, God has given us work. Work is not the curse. In fact, God made Adam a gardener before Adam ever sinned. And so work is to be a gift from God. And when God redeems work, it's to bring him glory. Heaven is going to have work in it because heaven is going to end up back on this restored earth where you will be at and you will have jobs, redeemed jobs that God, that you'll be fulfilled in. But listen, listen, work cannot be our identity. And I know for a fact because in my role, in my calling, because the ministry is so consuming, I can base my identity solely upon the fact that I'm a pastor. Do you know what it feels like when you walk into a situation and they say, Oh, pastor's here. Or do you know what it's like when you walk into a situation and say, Oh, the preacher's here. I've had both of those Oh no, put the beer up, the preacher's here. Are you with me? So here's what happens, or we start putting ourselves in our things. If we don't find our place and our identity in God, we start having our identity in our things. If you've ever helped Laura and I move, you know we've got a lot of things. All right, so I'm not preaching about things. However, when things become the thing, and when things becomes how you identify and your own worth by what you have or by what you don't have, there's a problem there. When we start comparing our things to someone else's things, we get into trouble because we either get pride-filled or we become so demoralized because, oh, I'm not a success. Things do not determine how successful you are. You can have things and lose the real test in life. And so if people don't find their identity in God, they find their identity in things or they find it in their position. And I kind of hit that with work. Or, let me stop there for a moment. One of the most eye-opening conversations I ever had was with a retired man, and he made this statement to me. He said, Roger, I used to be able to pick up the phone and talk to anybody I wanted to. He says, enjoy your power while you can, because once you retire, they don't return your calls anymore. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? But here's the point. It's depressing when we put all of our identity in our position because when that position is removed or downsized, we lose our identity. For 40 years, Moses says, I am the son of Pharaoh, the grandson of the greatest man on earth. I can do it. Then for 40 years, he says, I am nothing but a lowly sheep herder. But then for 40 years, he says, God... If you go with me, I can do it. The fourth unhealthy way we, we, we put our identity is, we put it in our aco- accomplishments. We put it on our resume. We put it in our he shed, our man cave. And now I guess she sheds are a big thing now today, right? And so what does a man cave look like? It has every trophy that you've ever had from high school. It has a picture of you with this person or that person. And what does it say? It says, hey, come into my man shed. Come into my man cave. And yes, there's a 65-inch TV, I wish, in it right there. And you come in there and on the wall, here's all of my accomplishments. And accomplishments are wonderful and they're great. I believe you should excel. I believe it's great that when your child succeeds on the honor roll, and when your name is there, and you get listed in who's who's or or whatever, and you and your resume has all the accomplishments, great. But our things, our position, and our work, and our accomplishments cannot be where we bring our identity and our success from. Here's why. If you've ever been in the sales game, and I've been in the sales game, I've been in sales, I've been in sales management, here is how it goes. You are the number one salesperson that day. And then Tuesday comes and they say, who are you? What have you done for me today? And then the week, you are the number one salesperson for the week. And next week they say, who are you? Why? Because you've got to keep producing. You've got to keep working for the machine. And here's the problem. If we buy into that idea that my life is my accomplishments, we get into this gerbil wheel where we just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. And we're empty. So who am I? Number two is the second thing we've got to answer this question. Not only who am I, but whose we are. Whose are we? Who do I belong to? Who calls the shots in my life? And listen, when an individual doesn't know whose they are, that person is an unchecked person. That's a person that doesn't have a life of accountability. And here's what happens. We are accountable to God, all of us, in at least one way. We're accountable because he is the creator. He formed you. He created you. He made you. He knitted you in your mother's womb. He put your DNA together. He gave you the chromosomes and made who you are. He gave you the color of your hair, the color of your eyes. He knit that together. He created you. And so by that alone... The Father has a right into my life because in that He is the Father of all creation because He has created everything. And because He has created it, He has a right to speak over it and to do with it what He wants. Why? Because it's His. So whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an agnostic or an atheist, and I'm convinced many people who are agnostics and atheists have that because they know the day they recognize there is a creator, then they're faced with a moral dilemma, do I do what the creator says? But as long as I say there is no creator, as long as I say I don't know if there's a creator, then whatever he says has no effect upon my life. Why? Because I don't know if he's there. But the moment I say there's a creator, I now am faced with the dilemma. Do I do what he says? And because he is the creator, it means as the creation, I'm accountable to him. Because he's the creator, it means my body, just based upon that alone, isn't mine. But let's go a step further. As Christians, as Christ followers, as believers, he has a second hold on us. And that is as our redeemer. As the one who bought us back from death. As the one who bought us from sin, as the one who bought us out of a life of emptiness, out of a life that had no hope, as the one who bought us out, not brought, but bought us out of a life that had no purpose and no meaning. The Bible says that he gives us the abundant life. Let's look at a verse here. I want to show it to you. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. And listen to these words. Do you not know that your body, Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body my body isn't mine. My hands aren't mine. My eyes aren't mine. I cannot do whatever I want to with this body. Why? Because first of all, he created it. It's his. And second of all, as a follower of Christ, he has redeemed it. He has bought it for him. I've told the story so many times. I'm I, 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 You're probably tired of hearing it, but it's the best illustration I can come up with, and it's the illustration of my mom's recliner chair in her living room. It has been there for years, and the only person who sits in that recliner chair is my mother. It's for her. And so when someone comes by, I don't care if you're President Trump or if you're President Obama or if you were Senator Bob Dole or the current Kansas Senator, whoever he is, if you come to Mama's house, she's going to say, honey, sir, ma'am, good to have you. I'll get you a cup of coffee, but that's my chair. And You're going to be asked, you think I'm being sarcastic. I mean, she will ask you to get up and she will sit in that chair. Why? Because the chair is not off limits to you, but the chair is off limits for her. Do You see the difference? We we think this thing is, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't go there. It's off limits to you. No, it's not that God has saved me and says, I can't do this, or I can't do that, or I can't do that because that's not for me. There's a negative component to that that may be true, but a higher component is this. He has purchased me, and he has set me apart for him, and he says, you are my special treasure, I bought you for my purpose. No one's going to enjoy you but me. You are for me. Guys, maybe you can identify with this. The check comes in, and maybe you're the one that writes the bills, or maybe you have an auto pay, or maybe your bride writes the bills, I don't know, pays the bills, I don't know. But that money comes in, and this goes to light bill. And this goes to the water bill, and this goes to the car payment, and this goes to the student loan over here. But when you have that $20 in your pocket, and it's boy money, and it's man money, doesn't that feel great. I can do whatever I want to for this. This isn't for the water bill. This isn't for the school loan. This isn't for the truck payment. This is mine, and I can do whatever I want to with it. It feels good, doesn't it? And that's what the Bible says. God calls you his unique treasure. He says you are a holy people, a peculiar people. And the word doesn't mean you're strange and you're weird. There's already too many weird, strange Christians out there. We don't need any more weird, strange Christians. There's enough of them on TV right now, all right? Hello, and listen, I'm a Christian, and we have some weird uncles in the family. I know them. We love them. But some of them are a little weird, I know. But he says, you're peculiar. What? He's saying, no, you've been set apart for my purpose. You're my money. You're my spending money. You're there for me. Another illustration. Jesus was once asked by his disciples, he said, do we have to pay taxes? And I wish he would have said, thou shall not pay taxes. I wish, listen, that would have been all over our bumper stickers everywhere, right? I mean, you'd be loving it right now. But what did Jesus say when they asked him, Jesus, do we have to pay taxes to this foreign government of Rome that has invaded us? And what does Jesus say? He says, Give me a coin. And they give him a coin. And he takes the coin and he says, Whose image is on the coin? And they say, It's Caesar's image. And he says, It's Caesar's image. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar's what bears his image. It has the image of the government. It's his. Pay your taxes. And then he gives the zinger. And he says, and give to God what is God's. What is he saying? He's saying you were created By a creator in the image of God. And wherever you go in this creation and in this earth, you are the very image of God. And when creation sees you, they know there's something different between mankind and the animals. And do we treat our animals with respect? Absolutely. Do we treat them with kindness? Absolutely. The scripture talks about that. But you are different man, you are different woman, you are different humankind. Why? Because you were made in the image of God, and on your person you are the image bearer of God. And wherever you go, they see God's image. So he says, whose image on the coin? Caesar. Well, give that to God. But he says, you bear the image of God, so give to God what is his. What is his? You are. Everything you are, everything you hope to be, your time, your talent, your treasure, your body, your past, your present, your future has been stamped with the very image of God to where creation steps back and says, there is something different about this thing I'm looking at. It's made in the image of God. So we need to know whose we are. Third, what do we need to know as as people? We need to know, number three, why we are, why we are here. So who am I? We need to know who I belong to, whose I am. And then we want to know why am I here? I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, particularly the catechisms, and I I love to go back and read the catechisms. Do I agree with everything in them? No. But I eat the chicken and leave the bone. But I love the very first question in the Westminster Catechism. It says, what is the main purpose of man? What is, if I'm quoting exactly, what is the chief aim of man? In other words, why is man here? And here's the answer. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why are we here? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, glorify, we don't use that word very much today in 2018. What is the word glorify? Well, it can mean beautify. It can mean to magnify. But I like the word, it means to exalt. What is man's purpose? What is your purpose? Is it to get enough money to pay off the mortgage? No, that might be a goal. But is that the chief aim of man? Is that the chief end? No, our main purpose is this, to step back and bring honor to God and glorify God, to magnify Him and exalt Him in everything we do. Let me give you a Bible verse. Don't take my word for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Look at this. It says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you run the half K, do it to the glory of God. When you take your, your truck, and you go mudding in Pungo. do it to the glory of God. When you're on the sales call, do it to the glory of God. When you deliver a pizza or you make the pizza, do it all to the glory of God. When you watch a movie, do it to the glory of God. Here's the point. There is nothing in this life that isn't spiritual. And I hope you get that in your mindset. We have this idea that there is, are things that are secular. Oh, these are secular. These are non-spiritual. And these things are spiritual. And we've bought into this false dichotomy that some things are spiritual, like going to church and praying over a meal and singing a hymnal and listening to Christian radio And these things are spiritual. And oh, listening to the the country western station over here. They even call it western anymore. I don't know. But listening to the country station, the eagle. Oh, that's secular and that's not spiritual. And so, oh, this is spiritual. This is church stuff here. And this is this. And over here, this is just non-church stuff. So this is non-spiritual. And this is spiritual. And this is holy. And over here, oh, this is non-holy. here's the point. If we're not careful, we start living in this fragmented compartmental life where we become hypocrites and fake because we don't blend them together. We put them in these compartments. Well, this is spiritual and this is not. You're washing the dishes, for your spouse is an act of worship to God. Just, and I'm going to say it, just as spiritual as when you bow your knee and say our Father who art in heaven. Why? Because just as you bow the knee and pray our Father who art in heaven, you're giving him glory to God when you wash that dish without complaining, you're doing it as a wor- act of worship to God, and you're worshiping Him with your action as you serve your spouse. Are you hearing this today? I, I may have to revisit it. And here's what happens. Because we want the secular and sacred to divide, here's what happens. We, we start making these subcultures. And here's what has happened in our subcultures. We have taken people who were wonderful musicians who were excellent musicians, who were wonderful entertainers. And we've said, let's take you out of the world and let's make you a Christian entertainer. What's the problem with that? Nothing. Except here's what begins to happen. We begin to now live and we try to this subculture to where now... Just like salt in a shaker stays in the shaker and never gets out into the world around it, it has no power because it stays in the shaker. One of the worst things we told people in my age growing up was in order to be in the ministry, you had to be a preacher. You had to be a pastor. God wants Christian nurses. God wants Christian doctors. God wants Christian longshoremen. God wants Christian roofers. God wants Christian delivery drivers. God wants Christian educators. And not all of them have to be in a Christian school. Are you against Christian schools? No. Hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. Secular and holy. And here's what God wants to do. God wants to interrupt your life. And he wants to interrupt your life with this. To where all of your life is worship. Not that we come to a worship service in times like this, which are important, absolutely. And we gather as the body, we gather as the family of God, and we, in a concentrated concert, we worship him. But listen, if all we do is worship him on a Sunday, we have compartmentalized this faith and we have forgotten why we're here. We're here to bring him glory every day of the week. And so ask yourself, is this thought, is this attitude, is this action pleasing to God, does it magnify Him, does it beautify Him, does it make Him laugh, does it make Him smile, does it bring Him joy? And so God wants you not to attend a worship service, but He wants us to live lives of worshipful service. Is that clear? Now someone's thinking... Roger, are there some things out of bounds? Yes, there are some things that aren't holy. There are some things that we shouldn't say, do, participate in. Absolutely. So I'm not saying take evil and call it good. But I'm zeroing in on this thing that we have, we have lived these lives where we think that the only time it's spiritual is when we show up Sunday. No, you are made in the image of God. You are an image bearer. And everything we do, we're to bring glory to God. When you kayak, when you ride the bicycle, when you exercise, bring glory to God. Magnify Him, exalt Him. And the fourth thing that every man wants to know, and I don't have time to get into it, but every man, every human needs to know where we are going. Let me say this to you, there is more to life than what you see here. This is like kindergarten getting us ready for eternity. This is the practice run. I'm going to spend more time in eternity than I am on this earth. So I've got to make the decades count on this earth. Look what Job said. I love what Job said. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. There'll be a day that your Father, your Savior, will stand on this earth again. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh, in my flesh, in my body, I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Where are you going? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, And you have surrendered to him and said, Jesus Christ, I want to follow you. I want to be a Christ follower. I want to know you. I believe in you. When this life is over. It is not the end. It is just the beginning. When you pass, your spirit immediately will be with the Father. And I'm going to go there on Father's Day, guys. But in the last resurrection, that body in the grave shall also come to life and shall be reunited with your spirit. And in a glorified body, you will behold and see the Father. And you will live and you will laugh and you will learn and you will rejoice in his presence presence forever. This life is not the end. It's the beautiful lobby and foyer to what God has for you. So don't live this life like it's the only one. Live it like you're living for something greater and more important because you are. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. Well, thank you so much for that. Hallelujah. Did you enjoy the baby dedications today? Amen. Do you enjoy the worship team? They did a good job today. Hallelujah. Roger, how do I become a Christ follower? Is it me? I have to be baptized? No, we're going to talk about baptism next week, but baptism doesn't save you. Does it mean I have to join Exalt Church? Joining Exalt Church doesn't save you. Does it mean I have to shake your hand, Roger, today? Does it mean I have to walk down the aisle and come see you? And you... You you take me off into a side room and talk to me. Here's how you become a believer in Jesus Christ. Here's how you become a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you say with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that He died upon the cross for you in your place, taking our sin, taking our emptiness, taking our, I'm going to say it, our selfishness, our wickedness, dying upon the cross in our place, taking upon himself the very punishment I should have gotten. And you believe he, he paid it. He paid the tab. He paid the check. He paid the payment. He made the payment on my behalf. I owed the bill, but he paid it. And you believe that he was righteous and holy, and so righteous and holy, even though he died in my place, he was perfect and innocent. And because he was perfect and innocent, God raised him from the dead. And now he testifies that because you believed in him, you also shall live. Jesus Christ, I ask you to be my Savior. Jesus Christ, I believe in you. Jesus Christ, make my life yours and make your life mine. Jesus Christ, I confess you today. You are the Savior. You are the Lord. You're the only way I believe in you. If you prayed that prayer, you don't have to do anything. But let us know if you would. We want to get some resources in your hand to help you grow in your faith. Dads, we love you. Non-dads, we love you. Moms, who have had to be mom and dad... We salute you and we love you. Dads who are here and you haven't been perfect, we love you. Those of you that have buried dads already, we mourn with you, we grieve with you. And those of you that said, Roger, I haven't had the most perfect parenting. Listen, the church is for you. You have a father who loves you, who wants to be a father, wants to be a parent to you and we want to be your family. God bless you guys. Happy Father's Day today. Give Laura a hand, if you will. Amen.